0: ladies and gentlemen to another episode of What's the Res? My name is Josh Herring. My name is Ethan Delves. And we are dedicated to carrying on the ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. We're recording this in the middle of September. We've already done episodes on LD and Public Forum for the September-October resolutions. Today we're going to do a different sort of resolution. We're here today with the co-executive directors of the New York City Urban Debate League. We have... Uh, Amisha Amisha Moody Meta, and Stefan Bauschard with us today to share their expertise about the Urban Debate Leagues and help us know a little bit more about uh, that side of the debate community. Amisha and Stefan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi,
1: thanks so much for having us.
0: I'm so glad you guys were willing to uh, join us on an episode. Um, help us know a little bit about your work. What all is involved with co-directing the New York City Urban Debate Leagues?
1: The Urban Debate League seeks to provide access to debate for all students, so we try to create programs and support programs of debate in all New York City schools. Uh, so the goal is to try to get debate to every single school in New York City.
2: With a goal to win you know, all your debates,
1: but you know, if you win
2: 50, 75%, you've accomplished a lot. So we always set that as a goal. I don't know exactly how many schools there are in New York City, I know you know, just because of all the talk about the coronavirus and kids going back to school, I know there are approximately 1.1 million students. Oh right? my that's gosh!
3: Trying to the, debate access—that's
2: just in the public school system. You know, that doesn't count like the numerous private schools
3: uh, that are the in the city, that. So. That is awesome. So your your goal is to provide debate access to about 1.2 million kids. What is what does like a a daily not a daily life, but like a, a daily sort of task list look like for you what do you do on the day-to-day to try to run these sorts of events or put together these events for the kids
1: so so to clarify, 1.1 million students in the school system, we only serve middle school and up. Right. Okay.
3: So, right. only yeah. 500,000.
1: <laughs> <Yeah. 000. laughs> so uh, only
3: 500,000. Yeah, 500, What's
0: it here, like 500? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's, our, that's uh, our school population yeah. is somewhere between 400 and 500. So
1: yeah, it's what, what does that mean? We look obviously like? are able to serve everybody, but our goal is to kind of, is to get there. So we outreach to schools and tell them about debate, give them opportunities to learn more about it. Um, And ideally then in a school, we'll find a teacher partner uh, who's willing to coach the team. And then we provide resources and training for that coach. Very often they're brand new to debate. Um, The idea really being that debate is something that improves literacy, improves academic performance, uh, increases both likelihood to go to college and college readiness, because they think they're a little bit two different things. Um, And so the goal is to help, and to have obviously engaged civic leaders. Um, so that's kind of the goal and the pitch to the teachers, and we hope that you know it's always nice to have students that can make it to the TOC. But it's really for the portable skills that we we kind of do this work.
3: And so have you had you've had students make it to the TOC from your training package that you provide to schools?
1: Uh, and additional work, <laughs> obviously. And, yeah, and, and everything. I'm sure, yeah. A lot of coaching. Uh, we had students who were octa finalists at. Um, in the TOC Silver Division two years ago. We had a quarter-final silver team last year, and then in policy, I think Stefan would know better.
2: Wow. Yeah, in policy, I mean, it's been a number of years, but I think the team reached the quarter-finals um, six or seven years ago, and both the students there uh, received col- uh, college scholarships and were competitive in college. If other students in policy attend the TOC, um, it's been a little while since they made the elimination rounds, but we have, we have had students, you know, reach that level of competition.
0: That's amazing. Now, I, I wonder if you could take us back to something you mentioned a moment ago, Amisha, about the access. Uh, help us know what are some of the barriers to access that, that really the, the Urban Debate Leagues are trying to overcome? What is it that keeps people from jumping in wholeheartedly to be part of the debate world?
1: I think that first thing is coaching that's one of the most difficult things. Schools can only provide so much programming and often debate's not one of the top things that they provide. Um, sometimes I think people count themselves out and schools count themselves out that you know, our students wouldn't necessarily be interested in this and our goal is to kind of show them that debate is a space for everybody and that there is room for a variety of students. I think it's very traditional. You think of, um, you know, you think of a white male at a prep school doing debate, and I think, you know, and people also have that view of, like, the auditorium, podium view of, you know, you think you're gonna come to a debate, and you're debating to this giant room of 300 people only to find out that, you know, even when you go to the highest levels of debate, you're in some classroom. Yeah. <laughs> you and, they're, and, they're um, and so kind of making it more real for them, and helping people see that there's something to be gained, and there's a space for everybody, right? It's not a world that just belongs to, a ster- like, a particular stereotype you might have in your mind. But that this is something that's accessible and beneficial to all students.
3: And this is just so just to so be clear, this is a nonprofit organization.
1: We are a nonprofit organization. We're actually, I think, there's 22. Stephen, is that right? There's 22 Urban Debate Leagues across the country.
3: Wow! And that all branched out from New York. From is that where it began?
1: No, I, they're kind of independent.
3: Definitely oh, no know better. Yeah, so all the leagues um, are independent.
2: I believe it began in Atlanta with a program supported by uh, Emory University, and then New York was one of the first original leagues. And then it was, I'm not sure how old the National Association of Urban Debate Leagues is, but I would say maybe they developed 10 or 12 years ago. We, we should check. But around then, to kind of support all the different leagues. Um, maybe even a bit older than that, but to support, they really provide like technical assistance and support to the leagues, but all the leagues operate independently. Okay. Um, you know, they all are a bit different. They have their own missions. They, you know, generally are focusing on providing debate access to, you know, lower income, disadvantaged students, but they all do that in different ways and kind of emphasize different, uh, you know, different goals within themselves. Right. I think one of the
0: places I've encountered some of the work of, I I don't even know which Urban Debate League it was, but uh, at one point I was, we were trying to start, we were starting to get into critiques last year and I I was Googling different critiques I could find and uh, different kind of, uh, different K's that had been put together by various Urban Debate Leagues were the things that came up most readily. Uh, so at least some of those resources were, were pretty helpful as so we were starting to kind of try to figure out what exactly is a cap k or, or or how do you run a fmk and there there were resources that were easily accessible which was quite helpful.
2: What what's like? I think the, that's part of it too, and you know, Amisha like kind of clued me in, so to speak, to that earlier. You know, I mean, earlier, you know, as we started working together, like, you know, you asked her like what makes debate accessible, and she mentioned coaching. You always. We always think of it's like, oh, if we just had money. If everybody just had money, then everything would be the same. But that's that's not the case, right? You need coaching. You need also need materials that are accessible, right? To people who are just starting to work with these arguments. And you have to realize maybe you know a critique at like the highest levels of high school debate, college debate. That's kind of been run through like many versions over the last decade, and is like evolved in certain ways to address certain arguments. And that's not where you would start with that argument. But I think a lot of people have this idea of like, well if we just take the evidence that the college debaters have and we just make it available for free, then you know everyone will have access and we'll have equity but it's not you know it's not how it works right like uh, you know a lot of a lot of chemistry and, and physics classes for major universities <laughs> are free online, but that doesn't necessarily mean kind of really accessible to, to everybody that's oh, like yeah. the champion
3: briefs and champion briefs is expensive too, but I know like what's the what's the other there's an oh, there's another, there's a there's, yeah, there's, there's so a, many there's a
0: lot of different brief companies i mean i think there's there's something i found and I've, I've been coaching now for five or six years I've, I've lost track but it's there's there's definitely every year i have a i feel like i get a little bit more clearer in helping students connect the dots between here's a sheet of paper with a lot with key lines underlined and how does that translate to what you actually read in your case at the tournament and. And the, the time between those two points is getting shorter. But yeah. I mean, I, th- I think you're absolutely right that there's it's not just materials, it's not just coaches, but being able to help schools with both of those is huge. And especially. So, we're trying
1: something new this year. We're actually, yes, we've developed a lead topic and we have a scaffolded approach to case writing. So, they have a contention, like one pre written contention. But the second one is um, they have an option to do like a fill-in-the-blank contention where parts of it are written. And then it sort of says, go find the evidence from this article. And it gives them an opportunity to become more independent. And then there's an option to do – there's an outline. So a student could follow the outline and write their own case but kind of getting them to the point from nothing to everything. hmm so,
3: It's amazing how standardized and comprehensive this program is, or or like your approach is, because it's not just about providing a coach, it's not just about providing materials. Because you, I mean, you could look up, I thought of the name now is, is Premier Debates, which is like the free champion briefs. You could provide any of those things like individually, but the fact that you guys have templates for cases where you can have one contention for reference, another one for fill in the blank, and then I'm assuming they would eventually get to the point where they could write their own. It's like you've covered all the bases, it sounds like. I, I, that's just crazy. And plus, after going through all of those different, you know, coaching programs and training programs and having their own school, like they're within their own school now has a debate program, getting people to go all the way to TOC, like that's just a large purview. That's a, that's a really cool accomplishment.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about uh, your, your backgrounds. I know, Amisha, you said you, you've not always been in the debate world, but uh, Stefan, you, you've been in this space for a long time. Give us a bit of your stories about how you got into this particular work.
1: Uh-huh.
2: I, um, I started out in eighth grade. We had a debate in our, I guess, probably called social studies class. Um, and one side was Russia, and one side was the United States, you know, and I'm I'm kind of approaching, you know, Medicare eligibility, so in those days, we just debated out of encyclopedias, so I'm sure whoever had the U.S. side had a bit of an advantage, but that really got me interested in debate, Uh, and they had it at my high school, and I started debating, and I really liked it, and ever since then, I... Debated in high school, debated in college. I was a graduate student debate assistant, full time debate coach. Got involved with the league. Um, so I just really enjoy debate. I think to me, you know, as the ADD student, as Amisha's learned as as you've gotten to know me better, right? That, that you know, sitting in class listening to the teacher wasn't always my thing, but I enjoyed the the reading and like the independent work. I think the topics are fascinating. Uh, to read about, the competitive drive is also a lot of fun, you get to work with the students, you know I think I I, I've had a chance to work with a lot of different students Um, you know, I've worked from elementary kids, I've worked with the best college debaters, and everything in between so I think that's one thing I really um, I really like about it Um, and that, I guess that's kind of my story, so I really like the urban debate because it has kind of a bit of everything and we have students at all different levels.
3: Okay, so, so. you so you started all the way back in 8th grade, I think. I started debate in 1984. Wow, well, that's quite wow. the same I, I haven't right. even taken a semester off. And also, could I, if I could ask about your college debate experience? Like, what style, or how did you sort of affiliate yourself with? So I've always really candidate?
2: until like you know six or seven years ago. Well, no, two thousand eight, like uh, co-started the Harvard Debate Public Forum camp, and Token and i had only done policy debate.
3: Okay. Um, okay. So, and you know, there wasn't
2: even obviously PF like back in those days. So you know, I debated policy in high school, college, coach policy all the way through, you know, all of my time and still spend some time with it. I still enjoy it, but what it really kind of attracted me to public forum is that, like, people do it, you know. So, yeah. uh, you know, policy, it's great. I think it's awesome. I do still love it. It's the best form of debate, but it's obviously super intensive in terms of time, resource allocation, and I think most importantly, you always find kids in any school who are willing to spend that time, you know, parents who are willing to invest those, even small number, right? But it's when you try to get it to a wider audience to get more people to do it, there just aren't enough coaches. You know, something Amisha mentioned was like the you know, the key thing. If you don't have a coach, it doesn't matter. You can have the greatest form of debate ever. If nobody wants to teach it to the kids and spend every weekend traveling around and stay up all night reading articles and it doesn't really matter. So I kinda you know I was kinda that's one thing that always bothered me about debate was just a lot of people weren't doing it. Um, you know, it was super competitive. It was super intense. I think even as the numbers and policy declined, it still became more difficult um, and more challenging. But the, the kind of volume was getting too low, and you could see a lot of okay. I knew schools used to do policy. They came back, yeah, because they had a teacher who was willing to do it, and a parent like just like how Amisha started. She can tell you her story, right? And you know it's accessible in that way to like more people, even like more competitive circuit PF. Like you can still get it. They'll let you judge unlike policy. You know they would just strike you and tell you you're an idiot, right? So it's 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 way more welcoming um, than those other events. So I think it has a lot of uh, you know good things going forward. It does have some downsides. I mean, kids pretty much like the the literature base is like Google News. Um, You know, the evidence is kind of a little shaky sometimes, but I think for the most part they kind of learn about the, you know, the topic and improve. I I think there's some ways it could be a bit better, but you gotta watch it, right? Like the more specialized you make it, then you know, you kind of, it's a balance, right? You're trying to balance like access,
3: debatability. I guess what I'm wondering is since you've done debate for a while and have experience interacting with all the different styles, public forum, policy, Lincoln Douglas, what is your opinion on styles of debate bleeding into each other? Because as, as I've seen new styles sort of come about, I was, I was, I've never done policy. Um, I've done maybe a year of public forum and four of LD. I've seen policy things pop up in LD. I've seen plans, counter plans. It's almost like I've watched policy debates for a couple of years now, but I'm an LD debater. Do you think that it, that could be a healthy thing for debate or if there should be rigid lines set up so that they should be completely separate? What's your opinion on that?
2: Yeah, I think all the arguments, look, the art policy debate, it'll probably offend a few people to say this, but in you know, in terms of kind of like intellectually, is kind of the most, it's been around the longest, right? So to say it's like the most advanced form of debate, in some ways they don't really even think people should be offended by that, right? Like it, it's been around the longest, it's where the people who studied argumentation and that, like that was kind of their outlet, right? So it's been developed kind of by... People who studied argumentation professionally, it's been around forever. So you've had a lot of these, you know, when you find, like, quote, unquote, professional debate coaches, like people who do this kind of more, like, for a living almost exclusively. Certainly there are some of those in LDNPF, but most of those people are in policy. So a lot of the events do borrow um, from policy just because those concepts and ideas are kind of tested and, like, refined over time. And that's where you have more of kind of your people who are like debate lifers. So it makes sense in that way. And of course, you know, now in LD, you either have circuit LD, which is basically one-on-one policy, or you have more traditional LD. Um, some of the stuff's making it into PF. I don't know about plants because sometimes the con goes first. And there has been some resistance to that. My, I, think, I don't think you can ever... You know, people and, you know, when I did some college debate, I debated in this area a little bit. We mostly just did like national circuit debate, but we usually go to one regional tournament a year and some of the other teams would go to more called the ADA, the American Debate Association. They tried to make rules, right? Like very like strict rules to define debate in, you know, certain ways and like protect the greatest part. A lot of people really invested in these rules, but eventually kind of the, even though there was such a great investment, the rules broke down, right? Because ultimately it's up to the judge it's kind of hard to come in and externally enforce a rule as as much as some people want so but i think what makes it different like what makes pf different is judging because judging is random sure you can have some strikes but it's a limited number you've got to be able to prepare to debate in front of a wide audience which reduces kind of the specialization and you know there's a couple forms of specialization you can have argument content specialization right where it's like okay i know a lot about climate change i know a lot about economics like i could really debate these issues i think that's good but then you have i mean what you call like debate concept like specialization you know te voting issue like link turn right all these kind of stuff like debate theory where does all that specialization come from right like that comes from debate camps right and then those people at debate camps, like, showing up at debate tournaments and judging, and then if you are a not somebody who, if you are a not, if you are somebody who did not attend a debate camp or a coach is not familiar with this, then you kind of, not intentionally, but you kind of get excluded, right? If you don't know that, like, debate camp technique, Right. And you can't fit your arguments in that framework. And, you know, judges like they think people who have these ideas, they think they're like smarter or more superior than everyone else. They think like because, you know, what, like a reverse voting issue that you're actually smarter than somebody who doesn't. Right. So they they kind of come in with these attitudes of like, haha, you're the kid from like, you know, who lives like in a treehouse who doesn't like know what a reverse voting issue <laughs> is. Nice. Right. And You're kind of right? They can kind of be like, you know, like I say, they do not intended. They kind of come with these ideas that they learn these advanced concepts. And then, that, you know, with judge preferences, that kind of gets imposed on everybody else, right? Um, kind of in an indirect way, again, not an intentional way, but an indirect The people who don't have that knowledge are kind of excluded. So you come in and you have to like know what a reverse voting is or all this, or people act like you couldn't have made it like even into any college in America, right? So you have to You know, so that's, once you have those judge preferences, that really kind of creates an exclusion that, you know, in some ways it has some benefits, right? It is frustrating to have a whole debate and somebody just say like, oh, I voted pro, like I thought you did a better job. I mean, could you imagine like going in front of the Supreme Court, like you've been working on this case for like years, it's trickled up through the Supreme, you know, the whole Supreme Court and they don't even write an opinion. They're just like, well, you know, we kind of thought, you know, the, the the plaintiff or whatever, like they did a, just a better job arguing their points. Um, you know, so we're going to go with you, right? Like, you, you would kind of, you know, that would kill you, right? Like, um, so it, it has some benefits. I think you kind of get better, well, more recent decisions, but then it also does exclude a lot of people, right? It makes people kind of feel like unwelcome, like stupid, right? So then they don't want to participate. And some of those people are coaches, right? Or people who come along and, like i say if you exclude them you even go back to amisha's original point that if you you don't have the coaches then like who cares like you're thinking me the greatest thing on earth but if you can't find people who want to like kind of gain that specialized reverse voting issue knowledge or whatever it is then kids like can't debate right so you know i think the biggest thing to me to kind of make like kind of go back to the more general point is I like the idea that there are different events. Like you you have policy debate, specialized two on two, you have LD in California. Now they even have LD tournaments. It's like you can enter the national circuit division or you can do the more traditional LD. And then you have like public forum that's built this way. So I I think I like them kind of keeping them separate. Um, And, but I think the only way to really keep PF separate is to avoid the like judge preference systems in PF because then it's just, going to be, it's just going to become one of the other events.
0: I think that's really interesting and a really uh, probably a helpful way to think about that. I know over the last couple of years, we've encountered um, really two different groups that are trying to create sort of a, a, an alternative. Uh, we're, we're partners with the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation to start a uh, – it's, it's still very small. It's, mo- it's just in North Carolina, but the Coolidge Debate League has started through the, the Luddy Schools – And they built that up to the, the, they run a national tournament. They do an invitation. They do invitations to it uh, every July. Uh, But really, they're trying to really push back against some of that specialization and try to recover the the public knowledge. And really, one of the cool things the Coolidge Foundation does for that, that as a coach, I find eminently frustrating every single year they invite local Vermont farmers to come be their judges at their national tournament. So if you really, to get to the tournament, usually these are kids who have, they've picked up TOC bids, they just finished being at NSDA Nationals, and they want to go to the Coolidge Cup because unlike TOC and NSDA, the Coolidge Cup comes with $7,500 towards college. And so, but then they, the skills that they needed to get there Are not what communicates to the local Vermonter who is now judging them, Uh, and so that—that's we found it's really interesting to kind of go and watch that. uh, We've—I have hopes of Ethan making it to the top this year. We'll—we'll see how that goes, but uh, it's—it's always really the last two years. It's come down to sort of a classic circuit debater and then someone else who is really a dark horse candidate out of the blue who really cracks the speaking to the average American in his debate. And being able to see both of those styles kind of clashed against each other is, I think, really interesting. The, the final
3: round is the best. And I f- isn't it $10,000 for first place dollars? Is it not? I think it's $7,500
0: okay. for first place and $2,500 for second oh, place. So, so if you make it, to that, make it to that final round, you're still sitting on a nice... Uh, help for usually so far the only people i've ever seen there are seniors and they're they're headed to college they want any money they can get but yeah it's uh the other group i was thinking of is the the ronald reagan foundation runs their great communicators debate which i'm i'm anyway i'll I'll save a rant for the reagan foundation for another day let's shift to a slightly different topic uh, I know we connected. We have to say that we love the
1: Coolidge Foundation as well because yes. their their president is on our board. Oh, <laughs> really? Board. And uh, they very generously have sponsored our tournaments over the years. And our city champions this year, they, they give uh, bids to New York City Urban Debate League debaters. Um, they designate a tournament. But this year, our city champs, the top... Uh, three teams in each of our divisions in both um, the league topic and the national topic are going to get to go to the to the Coolidge Cup. So we have to give them a plug too.
0: <laughs> Wonderful! It's it, it's uh, turns out it's a smaller debate world than than we knew. That's that's fabulous. Well, I know we, we originally connected in part because uh, the two of you collaborated on a Medium article. Uh, I'd love to get your, just kind of walk us through some of the thoughts that, that went into that. Uh, if I got the title right, uh, this is openly available on Medium. It's entitled Debate is Online. It was published on August 30th. Uh, what what kind of response did you guys receive for that article? Is that something people wanted to talk about or was there not much response? What What kind of feedback did
2: you get? I mean, we, did, we didn't get a ton of response, um, you know, to the thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> people commented, uh, people read it. I mean, I don't, I don't really know that it's a, uh, you know, it wasn't. It's not like an opinion piece, right? So it's, it was more kind of a. Here's kind of how this developed, you know, because we we're kind of uh, you know involved and aware of it from the very beginning. So there was part of that. The second was you know, hey, like, you should do this, like, we, you know, in a couple ways, like, you know, A, as a coach, like, you know, hey, this works, and we are trying to make the point, you know, especially as NYCUDLs, like, OEDs wearing those hats, that it works for all students, because people are very skeptical, right, about how maybe some lower, you know, students from lower, lower socioeconomic status backgrounds would be able to access it, so it was part of that to encourage the coaches. Part of it was to encourage, like, school administrators, like, I mean, the one thing I really know, schools, you know, a lot of schools, I guess I'll say, are really struggling, right, to kind of just get, like, online classes up and running, whether it's full-time, part-time, or asynchronous, synchronous. Like, they're really, um, you know, even no matter how much money they're dumping into these platforms, they're struggling to make it work. And, like, the debate community, you know, was so far ahead of the times. So, like, we ran, you know, enormous events. Right, like TOC had like over 1,500 students, I think, and as the ACE is like over 5,000 plus all the other participants. We ran events with like thousands of students online basically as soon as the pandemic broke out. Like we were way ahead of everybody else. These systems are in place. You know, basically all the tournaments that ran last year, almost all of them are running this year. You know, most of the platforms are like tried and tested. Like we're ready to go. I mean, you can see, like I know other events you know, even in schools like Model UN, like non-sporting events, they're kind of so like, okay, they don't know how to operate. They've given it no thought, right, like to how to organize their events. Some universities hosting these events are in a little better shape um, because they found ways to kind of adapt their technology. But a lot of people really, so, you know, we just think this is a year for kids to debate. Like, we realize that, yeah, kids are on screen time more because schools are asking more of them, right, than they have in the past, but it's very interactive. It's very fun, and we like want to encourage people to to do this. Um, so there's a little bit of that, but I don't know if that's something anybody really wants to argue
1: against, right? Like, oh. No, I think the other thing that we thought was really important was the. You know, back in the spring, everybody lost everything. You know, it was just sort of like, you know, students, their classes were canceled. Seniors lost graduation. You lost your last season if you were an athlete. It just seemed like the whole world was canceled. And what was exciting was that debate was still available, but not just that it was still available. it's So it's one, the reliability, right? That like something that you do, you can still continue to do. And then the second part of it was also that you get to see your friends. Right. And you normally come to a debate tournament and you get to see your friends. And this was something that you could still do kind of with a group of people who aren't necessarily in your town, you know, so who were far away, who you may, you know, God only knows when anybody will get to see anyone again. Um, but it was, it was really far. And that social emotional piece of having a place that both you could do something that was part of your routine and not lose everything. And the second that you could still stay connected to a world. And it's kind of like when you have your kids you're able to connect to them for so much more, right? I mean, that's like another big advantage of debate specifically with our Urban Debate League kids is that once you're part of a team, you have a coach who's looking out for you emotionally. You have a coach. In New York City, there's a big, um, you know, you have to apply to high schools. And so that's a whole additional complication. But now you have an adult who's there who kind of understands these things, who's able to guide you the same way you would have a coach who could help guide you through college applications if you were in high school. So it's kind of like, it's like any youth development activity having that activity then opens up a whole host of other benefits but when you take the activity away you also lose all of the other benefits so part of what we were saying was that it was just important you know it was important for so much more than just the traditional benefits of debate.
0: I think there's a lot there's a lot of value there I know we've seen I've seen a lot of that on even with our teams we just had our first online tournament but I got permission from our administrator that we were a small enough group, we were less than 20 people, so we fit within current North Carolina guidelines to actually come into campus and we could all, we're competing online, but every classroom is now set up with a a Zoom station basically with a dedicated monitor and microphone. And we can still sort of compete together and, and masks and social distancing and all the things as part of that. Uh, But I was kind of amazed to look at just how significant that is for friendships and long-term relationships. The other thing that I think is really that uh, I thought was fascinating about the way I thought you both expressed very well in your article was just how there's a way in which this enables debate to happen in ways that it previously couldn't. Where previously uh, some of the largest tournaments in the country are they're limited in just by distance for people to compete at. I know we found that our school is part of a network of, of Thales Academies where uh, in part because we had virtual students that my boss told me if I was going to offer debate in person, I had to offer an equitable version of debate for virtual students who are zooming into class. I put together a Thursday afternoon virtual club that suddenly it occurred to me like, well, there's no reason that students at other Thales Academies couldn't be part of our club this way. And suddenly, uh, we actually had our, uh, our newest Thales Academy out in Waxhaw a middle school team at our last tournament that was part of that virtual club, took third place at the, the last tournament, that they would never, that school doesn't have anybody yet, their faculty's young enough, that they, they just don't have anybody with debate expertise, but now they've got a kernel of students who have found that they, they like this, and it seems to me that where a lot of the rest of the world is sort of throwing their hands up in the air about how my favorite thing, whatever that is, is canceled, the debate community sort of pivoted really fast to figure out it's not going to be canceled. We're going to find a way to make this work. And I, I think there's an amazing story in there somewhere that you guys really articulated part of very well,
2: I think. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I just think the debate community in general, like we don't, I mean, part of it is because people don't know it, right? Like, you know, how how much it like pivoted and how quickly. You know, and I'm just saying, like, you see like how, A lot of schools are just, like, really struggling, right, to kind of, you know, run classes on a regular day, right? And here we have, like, you know, an event. And you could say, okay, well, at NSCA Nationals there are 7,000 people in my district there are 7,000 people. But you don't have 7,000 people getting scheduled in, like, I think it was over 1,000 different rooms for short periods of time, like, changing places. And all these people coming from literally all over the world and, like, kind of connecting in the same spaces a lot of which you don't even know who they are, right? So it's really kind of a, kind of, and, you know, have all different levels of previous, like, technology experience. Now I will say debaters and coaches, you know, are, are probably tech levels a little higher than, like, kind of maybe your average, right? But it's still to get everyone on. Most people hadn't used Zoom, all right, kind of had any kind of embed system or thought about you got to think of all these security issues and those kind of things, like, That all happened, like, really, in a really, really short period of time. Um, And I think the debate community as a whole, like, really kind of in a way deserves more credit for it than it gets.
1: It's actually, but I agree with you, it has opened up quite a bit of opportunity um, in that students can access tournaments that they previously couldn't because of the travel So, you know, you no longer have the barrier of if you can't afford the plane ticket and the hotel rooms are are enormously expensive. You know, and tournaments have been generous, I think, with students in allowing discounted fees. But the airlines aren't and the hotels aren't. Um, And so it's a really great way for students who, you know, and and NPF, as we discussed earlier, it's a little bit random. Right. So the more tournaments you go to, the more likely you are to win. And then once you start winning and getting that experience, you kind of figure it out. So. I think there's a whole host of opportunities for students um, who maybe economically couldn't access some of the national circuit, not just because of the tournament fees, but because of all the other costs that go along with it. It does definitely provide that for us at the urban debate league. It also provides some really interesting abilities to support coaches. Um, We've been trying to push this video call thing for a few years and it really hadn't taken off. Nobody was, you know, nobody was into it. We tried to do a board meeting even on a Skype call And it fell apart just a year and a half ago. And and people were like, we can't get on, we can't get on the Skype call. And now, you know, everything is happening on Zoom, um, which is great because it allows us to provide more support to coaches because you don't have to travel, right? So it's not like we can get to one school one day. We're able to group groups of schools. So it's like if we have two or three brand new programs, we can group them together to both provide outreach to them, but also allow them to work with one another. Sometimes, when you start a team, you only have two kids, you know, or three kids, and then it's a little bit lonely, or like you have four kids and two of them drop out. But this is going to provide opportunities for us to sort of pod people together. And you could have, you know, eight people out of practice or 10 people out of practice if you combine two or three schools and give those coaches a community in a way that I think veteran debate coaches always have that community. You know, new coaches don't really have that. So I think. You know, I'm big on silver linings, but I think that there's a lot of opportunity. Um, and obviously, you know, what's happening is unfortunate. I certainly don't want to downplay any of that. But I think that the forcing people were resistant to online and doing things virtually. And the fact that they're now forced to it really opens up a host of possibilities that existed before, but people weren't willing to access
2: I think the one thing, you know, we've got to work at more is you know, a like community or just people in different roles is, you know, I kind of predicted this and I see it a little bit, right? Like programs that are more well-established, well resources, have coaches that are like more creative. Um, the, vol- the number of teams they have at tournaments has increased, right? Because now, like, you know, I mean, there's not a room shortage. There aren't these barriers to travel, right? So you, you see the tournaments have gotten larger, but the number of schools really hasn't grown, right? And I think that you've got to be careful. Like I see, I see, you know, people who aren't like teachers, maybe just kind of doing this on the side a little bit or like part of the club. They're not as invested saying, well, you know, I don't know how to like use all this technology. This is kind of a big transition from what I normally do. Um, You know, there's all kind of other school things they have to worry about, like on a day-to-day basis, and I think we got to, you know, do the best we can to kind of make sure that those programs in the interim don't fall off, because as we all know, once you lose a debate program, it's hard to bring it back. It's not like it's just going to instantly reappear once, you know, we start to get to the light of the tunnel, however that comes out on the coronavirus.
3: And just to kind of supplement that a little bit in a more specific direction, What's the story behind Classrooms Cloud, or Classrooms.Cloud, I guess, however you're supposed to refer to it? How does that fit into the bigger picture of online debate and what it's going to look like in the future?
2: Well, I I guess I think there are two questions there, right? Like, what was the origin? Um, It's actually one of my former debaters, um, Preeton Shah, was on my debate team, Um, and he's the one who really kind of started Classrooms.Cloud. We had the idea... It actually built this um, infrastructure to run a school, like, shortly after the pandemic. So, you know, if you've seen, like, a debate tournament, like, you go into 106, well, he had it so you could just go into room 106, right? Like, you'd see Mr. Smith, right, or Mrs. Jones in 105, and you just followed your exact schedule. It was like, hey, we could use this for, like, debate tournaments. Um, So we had some meetings, and he kind of got that all started. I tell the story, and he never... He never complains that I tell the story. Now I think he's proud of it. The ultimate irony is that his senior year he went 07 at the TOC because during round one um, he had coffee in his computer and he spilled all the coffee on his computer. The computer broke. it's a huge thing. We didn't really have, like, a great replacement. He kind of got through. Some of the debates were still close. But really due to, you know, technical malfunction, he failed to win any debates um, at the tournament. And then, of course, now he's, like, you know the, the the infrastructure he built uh, ran that tournament. It ran NSCA Nationals, the first tournament. Uh, Misha and I and Shane Stafford uh, from Blake ran that was like the Georgetown practice and then the Georgetown tournaments. Uh, we ran those tournaments on the uh, on that infrastructure. And you know I know he's you know pretty busy um, now, right? So as far as what it means for the future debate, I don't know. I mean, there's obviously other platforms. Um, you know, I think he's got his down like pretty well. It's kind of fixed, fixed any bugs. I mean, it, it relies on a Zoom embed, so you know, Zoom's a billion you know, <laughs> a company worth, you know, whatever hundreds of billions of dollars now. So I think they can handle um, our debate tournaments. But I mean, it makes debate possible. I mean, even other systems that developed, who knows? Like, you know, would they have would they have done that if like he hadn't proved that it worked or thought of kind of how to kind of embed these things so I I mean I'll even give them credit for things like the tournaments that run on other on other people's platforms like they might have you know um, but yeah I figured it out early and um, you know we had tests we actually did the first you know Misha and I coach our own teams in addition to that like we helped each other out um, with the coaching and so our debaters were the first ones to use it we had a debate um between the two, and it actually, to be honest with you, it didn't go very well, like, because we had, like, some disruption, and I was so excited, and Misha's like, well, I mean, she was nice. She was like, you know, it didn't really go that well. But the, the thing was, the reason I was so excited, there were some problems with the communications and that, but the thing, like, it worked. Like, the kids got their pairing on Tab Room. They went to the rooms. There were some troubles with the Internet and, like, Connect. But I was like, those are, those are just, like, totally solvable. I'm like, the system connected the kids together, which and we did it and then we just ran like some additional tests and you know you know it's embedded so you had to learn okay it's best to embed it in chrome you've got to activate the microphone you know there's some things like that but i was pretty just excited that it kind of because that's its primary function right like zoom already exists okay tab room already exists right but you got to like pull the competitors together in like a workable fashion so
0: that's fantastic to hear the story of that kind of uh, the first person really to crack that particular uh, problem and, and solve it. Uh, so we're, we're coming to the end of our time today. I want to ask you all one last question, and uh, then we'll need to draw this to a close. Um, but why have you chosen to spend so much of your careers in the speech and debate world? Uh, what is it about this activity that you both find to be so very worthwhile?
1: I'm spending the latter part of my life in this activity, so I've only been doing it for about six years. I was, I'm a lawyer by training. Um, and I, I got into it because of my daughter and my son. They went to a debate camp. They went to an NYC UDL debate camp about six summers ago. Um, my daughter really fell in love with it and we kind of got involved in helping out at the UDL and, and they were nice enough to have a Saturday club for her. Um, And it was just so interesting to me. I think that, you know, I would have loved to have this opportunity as a student. It was an opportunity to learn about so many things um, beyond the traditional classroom, to be able to apply current events, to actually be able to argue it, to find a community of your peers. Um, All that was just really, really exciting to me. Um, She wanted to continue doing it. So we ended up, you know, I tried to help her. She was starting a team here in Westfield. uh, we looked for a coach, and as we mentioned before, it's impossible to find coaches. So that's how I ended up coaching it. Um, and along the way, we met so many wonderful people in the debate community. Um, and so many students who, you know, when I went to travel tournaments with the Urban Debate League students, one of the things that most impressed me was that we could go to a tournament, they do terribly. And at the end of the day, they'd say to me, they'd be like, Amisha, so next time when we go to this tournament, here's how I want to change my case and this is what I want to do differently. And I just thought, this is amazing. Like there's no, you know, they were always, you know, they were sad if they didn't go well, but it was never, am I going to throw in the towel? It was always like, well, here's how I'm going to get up and do this again. And I thought that that was, that really showed how much they cared about the activity. Um, And so I love that. I love what the mission of it is. I love that we're creating informed citizens that were able to increase kids literacy and all of that. Um, what's been really fun for me in doing this is that we get to figure out a way to deliver it a little bit better. You know, how do we efficiently deliver it? How do we scale the model? Because of course, like if you pour all of your time into two students, um, you'll get a result, but how do you then transfer that to, A larger group you know to all New York City schools Um, so that figuring out that puzzle has been really interesting and fun and we try sometimes we fail um, but it's also really cool because New York City is a place where things people just do stuff right we don't wait we just kind of try things and and we see what happens Um, so that's been really fun for me and I'm really lucky I get to do it with Stefan because he knows absolutely everything about debate. Um, that's not my background. Uh, so, like I said, I come more from the organizational perspective. But I think it's been really fun to work with somebody. Um, and it, it's great to have a job where you get to do this work, where you get to help people. So uh, I feel very fortunate to be able to do it.
2: Yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, once I've done it so long, like, I mean, what what else am I going to do? Like, you know, sell cars or, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know, right? Like, uh it, you know, so that that's part of it. But I know I really love it. Like I mentioned earlier like all the all the different parts that have I've enjoyed the research, the competition, the kids. I mean I think I've been a bit fortunate too that, you know, I mean I think if you do anything for a while you can get tired of it, but I've done so many different things in debate. You know, whether it's like coaching or researching or like organizing tournaments or like working with the league. You know, I think you know I've been able to shift, and if I get kind of burned out on one, I'll kind of oh, I'll do a little bit more of this this year, a little bit, um, a little bit more of that. You know, sometimes maybe I'll have a couple kids I coach a lot, and I'll like really enjoy that. Or other years I'll be like, well, I'll try to make a bigger team. You know, there's there's kind of a little bit of flexibility. But you know, I mean, you get to work with like in debate, even like some of the people are like you're just like wow, they're like really out there, like they're really smart, like one <laughs> are like super smart. Um, it's really a challenge, and you know, then you have like smart and kind people. You know, like Amisha that you get to meet and like work with. And uh, one thing I really like, you know, with her is like she really—I mean, she really gave me a fresh perspective on debate. You don't think about like a lot of these things. Like she came to the, you know, the Lakeland tournament that I run for my team, and you know, after talking with her, kind of after the fact, stuff she told me she worried about, like, oh, well, what if? You know, she emailed, oh, did you, you get the check? Like, you kind of, like, you know, pay? And I probably didn't even respond. I'm like, I'm kind of, like, at a tournament. Like, you know, whatever. you got your entry, like, we'll kind of, like, work it out. Like, you know, I, I, I didn't, you know, when you get an email, like, did you get my check for my one entry? It's just, like, I I'm like I, I don't know. Like, I, I don't care, you know? Um, but, like, she was worried, like, coming to the tournament that, like, she wouldn't be allowed to compete. That I'd be sitting there being, like, you know, where's your... You know, $50 entry fee, I'm not going to let you in, right? So it's like you worry about um, things people are concerned about, you know, that, so that, that I mean, I, I hate to belabor that point, right? Like too much, right? But you worry about that. You, you know, then people bring expectations about how other things they have like attended worked, right? And um, you don't think about that. Like, so she kind of really brought, like, brought the perspective of someone who's doing this from scratch, which I think a lot of people forget about, even when they're trying to help people. They don't, remember because most people who do this like they have done it before um and then you know middle school I hadn't really done a lot with middle school I'd run some camps I'd like done a little middle school but her team at that time uh, when I started it's mostly middle school and like a couple high school students so thinking about how to coach you know middle school kids especially just from scratch right like that was real challenge and like she helped me a lot with that because I teach the class like you know I maybe teach a debate class and I'd be talking about all these things or words a kid's never heard of and you know i'd want to talk about the topic for like 2 hours and then you're just like i can barely give a speech right so you got to kind of you got to you got to like pull it all back so it really kind of brings a fresh perspective and i think especially with this job and like online debate like you're trying to help people who want to help kids who kind of don't think they can do it right and like you know part of it is kind of being in their shoes part of it's like no you can help a 6th grader give a speech you're like 40 years old. You've taught for 20 years. I'm, I'm more than convinced that you can help this 10-year-old kid write a four-minute speech, right? So um, I don't know. I just kind of enjoy it. It's exciting. It's fun. But I think a lot of it for me is the change in the people.
0: Well, I'm so glad to uh, get to know both of you a little bit over this particular venue and to learn about your work in uh, in the debate world uh, just in case any of our listeners are uh, interested in uh, where they can go to learn more about the New York City Urban Debate League and, and to support that, uh, I, I have your website as debate.nyc. Is that, is that correct?
1: That's us.
0: All right. So listeners, if you want to learn more about the Urban Debate League of New York City and uh, maybe make a donation to support that organization, you can do that by going to debate.nyc. Thank you both so much for joining us on the episode today. Ethan, just in case anybody wants to get in touch with us or give us any feedback about this episode, how can they do that?
3: Yeah, if you guys have any uh, feedback for the episode, want to get in touch, you can do so at whatstheres at gmail.com. That's W-H-A-T-S-T-H-E-R-E-S at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit at whatstheres underscore, or visit our website, www.whatstheres.com, where we post all of our episodes and links to different podcast platforms to listen to the episodes. And until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth.